This is the My Dark Path podcast. I remember the moment when I realized I was in trouble. I'd been skirting the outside of a large open-air market in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I'd wanted to find a section that I'd been told about before diving into the mass of people who were shopping. I thought I was being smart, avoiding the risk of being pickpocketed. But more likely, I was like a mouse, foraging on the forest floor while a hungry snake watches over, waiting for the right moment to strike. By the time the mouse realizes he's being stalked, it's too late to escape. The strike was sudden, one blow to my neck surprising me, another blow hitting my leg causing me to stumble. In a split second, there was a hand in my pocket quickly and subtly diving for my wallet. I didn't pull off any heroics. I didn't use any self-defense techniques. The only reason why I kept my wallet is it jammed against the opening of my pocket as the thief pulled at it. Not willing to cause a scene by wrestling for it, they abandoned their attempt. I was lucky. Most people would have lost all their valuables. I was saved by pure luck. In shock, still trying to process what had just happened, I spun around to face my attackers. But what I saw wasn't a gang of hulking brutes or wild-eyed maniacs. It was just three teenage boys strolling along carelessly and innocently, not even looking at me. I remember yelling, but I still can't remember what, and I didn't exactly have a plan for this situation. But of course, their casual demeanor and my yelling made it seem like I was the crazy one. The more I recovered from the adrenaline of this moment, the more I appreciated the artfulness of it. They had observed me, determined in advance which pocket held my wallet. They coordinated the moment of the strike, each taking a roll, and then deciding how they would vanish into the crowd as instantly as they struck me. This wasn't a crime of brutality. This took practice, planning, and coordination. As I've reflected on the experience, I started to wonder about the talent that can be found in the criminal world. Now, I'm not here to excuse or condone burglary or any type of crime. Doing something illegal with flair and aplomb doesn't suddenly make it legal. Yet, all over the world to this day, people are pulling off crimes that demonstrate skills, imagination, and daring that would make them wildly successful in other fields if only they choose to pursue them. In this episode of My Dark Path, we're examining what it takes to pull off a truly audacious crime and what might have motivated the thieves behind them. Hi, my name's M.F. Thomas. I'm an author and a lifelong fan of strange stories from the dark corners of the world. Growing up, I was enthralled by any hint of exciting forbidden knowledge that waited behind the names and dates we learned in school. And these days, as I travel the world, there's nothing I enjoy more than to get off the traditional tourist map and find a place or story that's been overlooked, dismissed, or ignored. This is the My Dark Path podcast. In every episode, we explore the fringes of history, science, and the paranormal. What's unique about My Dark Path? Every topic, every destination is a place I've explored in person during my travels. This podcast isn't a retelling of a Wikipedia article. 
Instead, we explore unique topics that will intrigue and excite, and every once in a while, send a shiver down your spine. And so if you geek out over these topics, you're definitely among friends here at My Dark Path. And please stay in touch. Send me your emails at explore@mydarkpath.com. I'd love to hear from you. And to see content related to every episode, be sure to visit mydarkpath.com. And when you're there, register for the My Dark Path newsletter. You'll be entered to win a great drawing for an interesting item from our own cabinet of curiosities. We do that drawing every month. Thanks so much for listening. And let's get started with this week's episode, More Than the Money. Part 1. It was supposed to be a victimless crime. $70 million in untraceable cash stolen from Banco Central in Brazil. It was destined for the bank's incinerator, and it belonged to no one. Nobody pulled a gun or took a hostage to steal it. In fact, the crime wasn't even detected until the next day, when employees of the bank arrived at work to find an 80-meter-long tunnel leading into their vault, a vault which had suddenly been emptied. Two months later, 26-year-old Luis Fernando Ribeiro turned up dead on the side of an isolated road, his body ravaged by bullet holes and his wrists bruised from tight handcuffs. By then, the authorities knew that he had masterminded the Banco Central heist. Journalists had one question, was it worth it? If we're going to answer that question, we need to take a look at Ribeiro's life and the opportunities that it presented him. Brazil is full of unregulated and impoverished communities known as favelas. Favelas rarely have any of the services that so many of us take for granted, like healthcare, schools, and even jobs. They have to come up with their own way to generate electricity, running water, and meet other basic needs. Essentially, they're cities within cities, ignored and neglected by the government and the rest of the population. The most famous of the favelas are in the hills in and around Rio, where makeshift homes are practically stacked on top of each other. The people living here are severely neglected, trying to do what they can to survive in a world that's rigged against them. Crime is a way of life here. Often, the only way that offers one a chance to get ahead. Joining a gang is a badge of honor, of power, and of prestige. Luis Fernando Ribeiro grew up in the favelas of Fortaleza, Brazil's fifth largest city. The largest favela in Fortaleza, Bom Jardim, is home to 20,000 poor Brazilians. It sprouts up on the edge of a literal garbage dump. Some days, locals can dig up food or even drugs from the dump, or maybe something else of value that they can sell. Every day, they breathe in the toxic fumes of rotting waste. This was Ribeiro's world. He would have spent his childhood stepping barefoot over dirty needles and lumps of trash, told to stay inside when the streets got too crowded with guns and drugs. But no one can stay inside for forever, and sooner or later, he was bound to enter those streets himself, looking for safety and maybe an opportunity to escape. Ribeiro got into the drug trade as a young man, and he moved up quickly. He had killed a number of people in this line of work, which is a signifier of success. 
Still, Ribeiro seemed like he had a chance to do something else. He was a smart kid, really smart, and known by his friends for his creative thinking and big ideas. By 2005, he was one of the top drug dealers in Fortaleza, but it's not a life that you can walk away from easily. If Ribeiro was going to truly escape from the world of the favelas, he was going to need to do something much more audacious. So, he hatched a scheme to pull off one of the biggest bank robberies in history and do it without killing anyone. But he couldn't pull off something on that scale by himself. It's believed that he was a part of the Primero Comando de Capital, or PCC, Brazil's most powerful mafia. In addition to the drug trade, they also committed robberies and kidnappings on a regular basis. Through the PCC, Ribeiro would have had access to some of the most experienced, most daring, and some of the most vicious criminals in Brazil. But such access didn't come for free. If Ribeiro wanted to pull off a job, he was going to owe the PCC a major cut. As I started to read about Ribeiro's preparation, I was struck by the uncanny resemblance of his work to the steps that anyone would take to open a small business. He identified an opportunity. He recruited employees with a diverse skill set, over 40 robbers in all. He needed to operate in the right location, so he found real estate near the bank and rented it. And in order to access the capital and the resources to bootstrap his vision into reality, he needed a backer, an investor. And in his world, that wasn't a commercial bank or a Silicon Valley venture capital firm. It was his bosses in the mob. Now, this wasn't an impulsive cash grab. It was a complex, audacious plan requiring months of patient work and the ongoing management of his unruly criminal staff to make sure none of them got sloppy. I've known CEOs who wouldn't have been able to execute a plan like this. According to Brazilian journalist Dimitri Truillo, Ribeiro hired people who were, quote, engineers, people who were surveyors. They even had a pre-guide that they'd hired to draw a straight line to show exactly where they were going, end quote. They paid a former bank security guard to share sensitive information about the vault. Another man they hired, David da Silva, had participated in the biggest jailbreak in South American history. He dug a tunnel that led to the escape of 108 prisoners, including himself. The team gave each other cartoonish nicknames like the German and the tortured. Da Silva naturally was known as the big digger. For a headquarters, Ribeiro needed to get close to Banco Central so that they could dig a tunnel long enough to reach it. He also needed a cover for their activities so that they could blend in with the rest of the neighborhood, innocent enough that no one walking past it would think twice. So they settled on a residential house about a block away from the bank. The lease was under the name of Paul Sergio de Souza. They disguised the residence as a landscaping company. It sat beside a rundown motel owned by a man named Marcos, who, like most people in the area, wasn't a stranger to the world of crime and drugs. After the heist, he shared his memories with reporters of a time when, quote, a guy named Paulo Sergio turned up in a van and the place stayed empty for 15 days. Then he brought some workers and put up the awning and opened up his artificial lawn business, end quote. Marcos didn't think much of it at the time, 
but he wasn't in the market for a new lawn. Ribeiro's gang exercised extraordinary discipline in maintaining their disguise. Their van was painted with the Landscaping Services logo. They covered the lawn with synthetic grass and kept it neat and orderly. They made hats with the company logo and placed ads in the local paper. They even went door to door, introducing themselves to their neighbors. Now, landscaping was the perfect facade for these robbers. They needed an excuse to be seen with all these mounds of dirt that surfaced as they dug their tunnel. And the ruse worked, even when some of the members of the gang had trouble keeping their secret. Marcos remembered, quote, the one who was being very friendly to everyone around here was named Paulo Sergio. There was once when he told me that he was going to do some work at Banco Central, but I didn't suspect anything because there was no mess, end quote. It's a tantalizing lesson how much you can hide behind a veneer of normalcy and respectability. That comes up in all the stories that we're discussing today. Even when it came to the tunnel, Ribeiro was very careful to treat his employees well. For three months, workers took turns in eight-hour shifts. Ribeiro had paneled walls installed to reduce cave-ins and ventilation to circulate air. There are warehouse workers in legitimate businesses all over the world who may not get treated quite this well. The tunnel was tall enough to stand in upright and wide enough to walk through without a struggle. It was imperative that people could move easily inside of it because soon they'd have to make the trip over and over again while carrying heavy loads of cash. $70 million in bills weighs over three and a half tons. Ribeiro's team faced shockingly few obstacles in implementing his plan. Seemingly, the only problem the diggers ran into was when they came across some unexpected piping that blocked their route. The police estimated that the gang spent around $200,000 to construct the tunnel. They also had the cost of falsifying a business, renting a building, employing workers, and paying for getaway cars and plane tickets. Not to mention the fee that Ribeiro would have to pay the PCC. From what little is known about them, the guess is that they would usually demand at least one to two million to be involved in big jobs. Ribeiro's gang would need to steal a remarkable amount of money if they wanted to make a profit on this whole venture. But that's exactly what they did. It was just before 8 a.m. on Monday, August 8, 2005, when employees arrived for their shift at Banco Central. When they'd left work the previous Friday, the bank's vault had been stacked with $70 million in cash. Since it was due to be burned, the bankers hadn't recorded the serial numbers of these bills. They were completely untraceable. The employees opened the vault and found all $70 million gone. Confusion turned into horror when they noticed the highly secure vault, one meter thick of steel and reinforced concrete, had been drilled through. And beyond the drilling was an entrance to a tunnel. And incredibly, the tunnel stretched all the way underneath Dom Manuel Avenue, a highly trafficked road. How could no one have detected this digging? Authorities followed the tunnel, which led them to the landscaping business a block away but it was already empty and completely covered in white powder to prevent fingerprinting. They had only one name to go on, the supposed leaseholder, Paulo Sergio, but he seemed to have vanished without a trace, and maybe he was never real at all. 
The plan had worked perfectly, but the aftermath turned out to be a disaster. With such a large team necessary to pull off the job, many of the robbers couldn't resist the chance to enjoy and flaunt their wealth. One gang member bought 10 brand new cars at once, just a week after the heist. Da Silva, the big digger, was caught with hordes of money on his person. Five other robbers were caught making suspiciously large purchases, like mansions and private planes. Police were scooping up more and more members of Ribeiro's team. Did they feel invincible? Did they secretly want to get caught? Or did their discipline fail now that they weren't under such strict management anymore? As for Luis Fernando Ribeiro, he had fled to Sao Paulo, where he hid undetected for two months. He spent his days sleeping and his nights partying. He had a lot to celebrate. He'd pulled off the second largest bank robbery in the world at the time, the only larger bank theft. The day before the U.S. invaded Iraq for the second Gulf War in 2003, the dictator Saddam Hussein stole a billion dollars in cash from his own central bank. The police may not have known Ribeiro's name yet, but enough key figures in Brazil's underworld certainly did, and they wanted a piece. Ribeiro was outside of a nightclub in Sao Paulo on October 7, 2005, when he was kidnapped. Within hours, his family received a threatening phone call demanding a ransom of one million reals, nearly $200,000. The family contacted their lawyer, Marcio Marcio, he assembled the cash and went, as instructed, to a dingy petrol station. The kidnappers were there waiting for him. They handed him a walkie-talkie and let him speak with the panicked Ribeiro. With proof that his client was still breathing, he handed over the money. The kidnappers fled, but there was no sign of their hostage. Ribeiro's family grew desperate. They contacted the police and confessed that they believed his kidnapping was related to the heist. The police agreed that it was definitely because of this robbery, but they could not find any leads and, two weeks later, the body of Luis Fernando Ribeiro, the second greatest bank robber in history, turned up on the side of a road hundreds of miles away. He'd been shot seven times. Since the burglary, eight arrests have been made, far short of the dozens of employees Ribeiro assembled, and of the 70 million, only 8 million was ever recovered. Some of Ribeiro's former team got back together for a sequel, targeting a Banco Central in Sao Paulo in 2011. This time, they dug a tunnel 2,000 feet in length with a goal of stealing as much as $900 million. But they were caught before they completed the crime. Many of them had been watched closely by the police ever since their heist in 2005. So, if Ribeiro's ultimate goal was to escape a mean and doomed life in the favelas of Brazil, whether or not he achieved that goal depends on your point of view. Given the world he operated in, dying of old age was a long shot, and I'm left wondering, what would he have done if he'd grown up in a more stable community, received an education, and perhaps had the opportunity to put his incredible skill and vision and intelligence to work? We'll never know. But even if he didn't live to spend the money, even if his time on earth came to a cruel and brutal end, for one brief moment, he got to show the world his true potential.
part two. I mentioned that $70 million in cash weighed three and a half tons and sat behind a foot of steel reinforced concrete. To steal that was going to involve heavy labor in any scenario, but there are other ways of making a big criminal score without tunneling, without a large team full of people who might give away the secret, and without even much risk of being shot. So what's the catch? The catch is if you commit a crime this way, it's possible you'll never get to spend the wealth that you steal. Welcome to the world of art theft. Now, if you haven't been paying attention, masterpieces of art have been getting much more expensive. In 2017, a painting by Leonardo da Vinci called Salvatore Mundi was sold at an auction for over $450 million. Part of the reason prices climb so high is that it's so rare for works of that status to be put on sale at all. There's actually a law prohibiting the French government from ever selling the Mona Lisa, although an insurance assessment once put its value at somewhere between $660 and $850 million. There are even more rumors that the Mona Lisa you see at the Louvre is actually a forgery or a fake, and that it's actually been stolen. So you can see the temptation. So let's talk about the largest art theft in the history of the world. And we'll take a guess that what might have motivated the thieves, but with one caveat, to this day, we're still not completely sure who the thieves are. It all happened in the early hours of March 18, 1990 at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. The museum guards were Rick Abbott and Randy Heston. It was Heston's first night on the job. Abbott was patrolling the halls when the building's fire alarm sounded. He checked the fire alarm control panel, which reported smoke in multiple rooms of the museum. Figuring it was just a system malfunction, he shut off the alarm. Then, at 1.20 a.m., two people in police uniforms arrived at the museum's side door. They told the guards they were responding to a disturbance call. The guards let them inside. As they passed the front desk where Abbott was stationed, he noticed that one of the supposed cops was wearing a fake mustache. Caught, the thieves pounced on Abbott, placing him in handcuffs. And when Heston arrived at the desk, they forced him into handcuffs as well. The guards were led to the basement where they were tied to the furnace, their eyes and mouths duct taped shut. The thieves examined their wallets and noted their addresses and warned them not to tell the police a word. They promised the guards that if they complied, they'd receive a reward in one year's time. Over the next 81 minutes, the thieves ransacked the museum. They smashed any alarms they came across and made off with 13 pieces in total, including masterworks from Degas, Vermeer, and Rembrandt. The FBI estimated that the total value of those 13 paintings was half a billion dollars. A rigorous investigation began right away, and there was already a leading suspect, a notorious art thief by the name of John Tillman. Tillman had never stolen as a way to survive, and he kept stealing even after he had enough to retire on. For him, stealing gave him a sense of pride, of accomplishment, and of power. Unlike the poverty and violence that Luis Fernando Ribeiro grew up in, John Tillman came from an affluent suburb of Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. According to an interview with the CBC, he started stealing when he was just nine years old. 
He said that he loved the feeling of carrying large amounts of cash in his pocket at school. He estimated that by the age of 12, he had collected one or $2,000. He explained that it was, quote, acquired through savings, wheeling, dealing, and stealing, whatever I had to do to get it, end quote. By the time he was a teenager, he'd become interested in fine art, and he had already successfully robbed museums across Nova Scotia by the time he was 20. Tillman attended college at Mount St. Vincent University, and like many college students, spent most of his time at the library. But he wasn't studying for finals. He was focused on something else, a passion project. Sitting on display in a locked glass bookcase was a rare first edition copy of Charles Darwin's book on the origin of species, and Tillman was determined to take it. He hadn't quite prepared himself for a job of that scale, though, and decided that he needed more practice. Only years later, after successfully committing hundreds of other thefts, Tillman returned to his alma mater and successfully stole Darwin's most famous work along with 30 other rare books in the university's collection. The book was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, but Tillman knew that he wouldn't ever see that much on the black market, and he settled for a small 31,000. But it didn't matter. To him, the thrill was the reward. Each heist was an intense, high-risk game. He referred to his robberies as missions, as though he were starring in an action-packed heist movie, That idea isn't actually much of a stretch. He was an expert manipulator and planner, often using elaborate disguises, including custom props and accessories, in order to get museum officials to trust him. On certain occasions, John Tillman even invited family members to join him. I guess he enjoyed the experiences of stealing so much that he wanted to share it with the people closest to him. Later on, when he was asked about the theft of a 200-year-old watercolor from the Nova Scotia legislature, Tillman recalled, quote, This is one of my favorite heists because it employed my mother, and it went very well. What we did is we dressed up as maintenance people on that thing with overalls, caps, names on our jackets, and we also had radios clipped to our belts. So we had a van parked outside for the occasion and a telescopic ladder-type device and we went in and we pretended to be maintenance people, end quote. John Tillman took his operation around the world, and joining him to round out the team was his wife, a woman he'd met in Moscow named Katya Anastasia Zeskova, along with her brother Vladimir. John, Katya, and Vladimir pulled off art heists across Europe, the Middle East, Africa, and South America, They had a well-practiced routine. Vladimir would hack into a museum's security systems and disable the alarms. Katya would cause a distraction, and Tillman would steal the art. Tillman was known to law enforcement. He'd been arrested for making obscene telephone calls and threats, but he had yet to be convicted for any of these high-stake burglaries. After completing literally hundreds of them, Tillman felt invincible and, in his own words, a little cocky. His narcissistic tendencies, his belief in his own invincibility, meant that he couldn't stand to have his brilliant achievements be a secret forever. He would tell boastful stories about his heist to just about anyone who would listen. In 2008, he actually invited a local Halifax magazine called Homes, etc. to feature his home in their home decor section. 
and his home was filled with stolen art and antiques. When asked by journalists if this invitation was him asking to get caught, Tillman replied, quote, That was a part of the thrill, part of the adrenaline rush that I would get. I'm not going to deny that, end quote. Finally, in January of 2013, police officially raided his home. Inside, they found over 10,000 pieces of stolen art and artifacts. He had an absolute treasure trove, even including a letter written by George Washington priced at $1 million. It took police over three years to catalog all the works they recovered, but those 13 paintings from Boston, they weren't there, and he never mentioned them. There are rumors that he had stashes of stolen loot, but John Tillman died on December 23, 2018 without ever confirming if he had robbed the Gardner Museum. At the time of his death, he'd been working on a deal to have a book and a movie made about his criminal career, an attention seeker to the end. Meanwhile, the police had another suspect in the case, a man named Bobby Donati. Donati was a member of the Patriarca crime family, better known as the Boston Mafia. Donati had conducted multiple art heists before the Gardner Museum was robbed. The police had a theory that Donati may have stolen the art for a kind of ransom. He'd had a friend in prison, Miles J. Connor, and the police thought that Donati might have stolen the works in order to exchange them for Connor's early release. In the year following the heist, friends reported that the usually outgoing Donati had become reserved and anxious and rarely left the house. He told people that he believed he was being followed. Then, on September 21, 1991, he was kidnapped. Three days later, his body was found in the trunk of a Cadillac, his throat slashed, and his head bashed in. He'd also been stabbed over 20 times. This immediately takes me back to the kidnapping and gruesome murder of Luis Fernando Ribeiro. Whatever the circumstances were that led to the killing of Donati, it was clear they were connected somehow to the life of crime and corruption that he'd been leading. But he too died without ever confessing involvement in the Gardner heist. The museum has offered a $10 million reward for information leading to the recovery of the 13 paintings. But to this day, none have ever been recovered. Anthony Amore, director of security and chief investigator at the Gardner Museum, told reporters that his biggest fear is that the works are now hiding in plain sight. That if you saw one outside a museum, you might not know how valuable it is. He says, quote, I have this nightmare that some investigators over the 30-year period might have been doing a search in someone's home somewhere, looking for drugs or money or guns, but they don't know what these paintings look like, end quote. Amore has reasons to be afraid. Frenchman Stephanie Bressweiser stole 239 artworks between 1995 and 2001, and when he was finally caught and arrested, his mother panicked. She wanted to protect her son, so she shredded as many of the paintings as she could get her hands on, shoving the fragments down the garbage disposal. One Swiss police officer remarked, quote, never have so many masters been destroyed at the same time, end quote. So who's to say that the 13 Gardner pieces didn't suffer the same fate? It fascinates me that the two leading suspects in the Gardner heist could have such wildly differing motives. For one, it would have been about ego and the thrill of danger. For the other, it would have been about power and leverage. 
And the estimated value of those paintings, $500 million, wasn't even the most important factor to either of them. And perhaps that's the most fascinating part of all. Part three. As Luis Fernando Ribeiro knew, you can get your hands on untraceable cash, but it can take up a lot of space. And as John Tillman could have told you, a painting can pack a lot of value into very little space, but then it's hard to sell it once you've stolen it, so it's not a great way to make money. If you want something really portable, something you could fence for a lot of money, you could follow the example of Italian con artist Leonardo Notobartolo. His specialty, diamonds. The world's most valuable jewels and uncut gems are usually kept in vaults underneath the earth. They're harder to get into than a bank vault, and people who own them have more resources to hunt you down than the mob. The profits could be gigantic, but the challenges are greater than any we've talked about so far. To even plan a plausible jewel heist takes a true visionary, someone who combines the kind of audacity and genius that could disrupt industries. Let's take a trip to the town of Antwerp, the beautiful city at the heart of the Flemish northern region of Belgium. It's got a mild climate, a rich legacy of producing master painters like Rubens and Van Dyck, and the largest, richest, and most famous diamond district in the world. High-end jewelry shops, some of whom have been in business since the Middle Ages, stretch out over a mile through the city. 84% of the world's rough-cut diamonds pass through Antwerp for cutting and polishing. That means that billions of dollars worth of diamonds move around this one-mile area, and great measures are taken to protect them. Elaborate alarm systems, locks with over one million possible combinations, seismic sensors, and infrared heat detectors. In theory, break-ins should be impossible. But on the weekend of February 15th and 16th, 2003, Leonardo Notobartolo proved that they are not. I don't know what's more remarkable, the scheme he pulled off or the tiny, mundane, and oh-so-human mistake that ruined it all. Notobartolo committed his first robbery at the age of eight, stealing jugs of milk from his neighborhood milkman. And from there, he never looked back. Like John Tillman, he was addicted to the rush that stealing gave him. He grew into an expert thief, and he escalated his targets from milk jugs to cash and diamonds. He often traveled from Italy to Antwerp, where he would pawn off diamonds he'd stolen elsewhere. But seeing all the wealth in the diamond district, he fantasized about the ultimate jewel heist. And in 2003, he got to work making his dream a reality. Planning the heist took 18 months. He assembled a gang of the best robbers he knew, and they called themselves the School of Turin. They rented an office space for $700 a month right in the heart of the diamond district. Norta Bartolo posed as an Italian diamond merchant, and he impressed his neighbors with his expert knowledge of the jewels. His office rental included a very special perk, an ID card that granted him 24-hour entry to the office, as well as access to a safe deposit box in the vault under the building. The School of Turin Thieves got to work, surveying the building, taking pictures of inside the vault, using cameras hidden inside pens. 
they even managed to install a hidden camera above the vault's doors, which they used to observe the guards as they entered the vault's door combination and to study the shape of the vault key so that they could make a duplicate. The camera's signal couldn't reach the surface, so they hid a sensor inside a fire extinguisher in a nearby storage room and retrieved the footage from it regularly. The day before the heist, Nortar Bartolo used his ID to enter the vault. He used hairspray to disrupt the thermal motion sensors. The guards were right there and didn't even notice. The sensors went offline for several hours, giving his team time to dismantle them later. The next day, Norta Bartolo waited in a getaway car where he listened to a police scanner. Meanwhile, his gang, equipped with rubber gloves to avoid fingerprinting, picked the lock to an office building adjoining his. The two buildings were linked by a garden that did not have any cameras so they could enter their own building without being seen. They used a ladder to climb onto a balcony in the garden, but this balcony was also monitored by an infrared sensor. The robbers blocked it with a homemade polyester shield and then disabled the alarms. They were in. They covered the security cameras with black plastic bags. This allowed them to flip on the lights without the cameras noticing. The vault was also protected by a magnetic lock armed with two plates. If opened, the magnetic field would be triggered, sounding the alarm. But the School of Turin was prepared. They attached a custom-made aluminum plate to the vault door and used it to pivot the magnetic field out of the way. It was almost going too smoothly. They even found the original vault key inside a utility room, which made their carefully crafted duplicate unnecessary. Inside the vault, they turned off the lights to avoid triggering the light sensors. One robber had memorized the exact number of steps from the vault door to its security panel, where he rerouted the electrical circuit, cutting off the sensors completely. And, as an extra precaution, they used styrofoam boxes and tape to block the heat and light sensors. They drilled through the locks on every security box within the vault. Then they emptied the loot into duffel bags and brought them out to Noto Bartolo's car. No alarms, no witnesses, and no mistakes. Just diamonds, jewelry, gold, and silver. The merchants estimated the loss at over $100 million. Their destination was France, where they intended to burn their plans and any other evidence. But here is where the smallest, most human detail that wasn't a part of the master plan sealed their fate. It was a long drive from Belgium to France, and the thieves had worked up an appetite. They stopped at a local grocery store for sandwiches before continuing the drive. But then they became paranoid about carrying so much evidence with them across the border. So they changed plans and discarded all the duffel bags of evidence in a cluster of trees on the side of the road. And they forgot that inside of one of the bags was a receipt from the grocery store. The police located the evidence the next day and used security camera footage from the grocery store to track down the entire gang. The School of Turin was arrested just days later, but the majority of the loot was already transferred out of their hands, and to this day, most of it still hasn't been recovered. Leonardo Notobartolo was found guilty of masterminding the heist and sentenced to 10 years in prison. 
He was released early in 2009, but returned to prison in 2013 for parole violations, and he was finally released in 2017. All that wealth, all the expertise, and the planning that took to get this robbery done became undone because of a sandwich. We've all been known to make bad decisions when we're hungry, but I don't think I've ever heard of a bigger blunder than this one. Noto Bartolo now claims that he was hired to do the job by a diamond merchant, that the value of the jewels he stole was wildly overinflated, and that it was all a scheme to commit insurance fraud. Does that explain the incredible good luck his team had right up to the moment that they bought those sandwiches? Was he really just a contractor putting his skills to work for someone else's profit-making venture? The claim is dubious to say the least, but it's interesting to me that at the moment when he became well-known as a criminal, he no longer wanted the credit. Maybe for him, the challenge was everything. Part 4. Luis Ribeiro was dumped on the side of a road, his body filled with bullets. John Tillman's high-flying, globe-trotting adventure ended with him dying alone after years in a prison cell. Leonardo Notobartolo barely had a moment to celebrate his success before his Diamond District apartment was traded for a cold, dark cage. Their heists practically stand as works of art in and of themselves, the product of intense discipline, creative thinking, and strokes of brilliance. They show a sort of daring that captivates and perhaps even inspires. And maybe in the middle of this, you've imagined yourself there, entering a forbidden vault, seeing riches beyond comprehension. Maybe it's made your heart pound a little more. But there's always the aftermath, the paranoia, the punishment, the violence of the world you wanted to escape coming to claim you. It seems like the money is never the reward. And it's striking to me that Ribeiro stole cash that was due to be incinerated, and that, when you talk about painting and jewels, the whole concept of valuation for them is blatantly irrational and absurd. What does it even mean that a painting is worth $100 million? It's not like the artist or their family sees any of that money. And there's a well-documented history of manipulation and artificial scarcity that inflates the so-called price of diamonds. And after that group of kids in Sao Paulo, Brazil, struck at me and tried to rob me, I went down the same dark path that many do. Anger, confusion, fear, and vulnerability. But as I considered the stories of these geniuses of crime and what drove them, my eyes opened to so much more about the irrational ways sometimes we assign value to certain things and how someone you least expect can demonstrate all the best qualities of entrepreneurship even while they embark in an illegal business. I don't hate those kids for what they did, but I've learned a few things about walking through marketplaces and protecting my wallet. And every so often when I'm in a museum, I'll look at a painting on the wall and I admit I got a little thrill by asking myself, what if? Thank you for listening to My Dark Path. I'm M.F. Thomas, the creator and host. This story was prepared for us by Laura Townsend. 
Our senior story editor is Nicholas Thurkettle, and our lead researcher is Alex Bagasy. Thank you to Emily Wolf, our producer, and the entire My Dark Path team. Please take a moment and give My Dark Path a rating and a review wherever you're listening. That definitely helps us reach more listeners. Again, thanks for walking the dark paths of history, science, and the paranormal with me, your host, M.F. Thomas. Until next time, good night. Featured on the modern two real bill. What animal is featured on the modern two real bill?